Hebrews 8, as has been our case lately. What does it mean? I will be their God and they will be my people. And what is the impact on us that he says, all will know me, all will know me. If anyone chooses to read Church Dogmatics by Karl Barth, probably he, over everyone else, is the heir of the Apostle Paul in the modern era, Karl Barth. I was recently read that he had a quarter of a million quotes in his Church Dogmatics volumes. But if you ever dare to read it, I have a tip for you. There are 78 paragraphs dotted throughout the whole work, and they are sort of like thesis paragraphs that summarize everything. And in the 71st paragraph, I spent most of my study day meditating on it rather than reading a lot. And he mentions the New Covenant community as a people that God awakened to faith in so many words, I'm paraphrasing. But then he says, God places us in ministry and witness to the world as a people who are afflicted and yet well-equipped. And I meditated on that a lot, and I still have it in my mind, because I, if I were to describe myself, that's pretty much my experience, <laughs> is afflicted but well-equipped by the grace of God. We're well-equipped the word, with the hegemonic spirit, where the hegemonic spirit is, the demonic fades away. Where the spirit leads, there is salvation for a generation, for individuals, for a people, for a community. When the spirit is hegemonic, the demonic takes flight. When the demonic is in control, there is perishing, as there is in our nation today in many quarters. And so the things that we're teaching have a remarkable impact on us. And Hebrews 8 is going to launch us into Hebrews 9. And in Hebrews 9, we're going to travel a lot faster, I think, in our exegesis, only because the writer does. He mentions the innards of the tabernacle. And then he says, we don't have time to speak particularly about all of these things. And because he doesn't, I'm not going to, because there's something that he's trying to get to. We're dealing with the better promises that are enacted with the new covenant. Among those better promises is the better promise that I will put my laws into their mind and upon their hearts. The old covenant, he inscribed those laws on flat stone tablets and required them to obey in order to be blessed. But now, he writes his laws upon our minds and hearts. He inscribes them upon our heart means that he inclines our heart to do them. That he writes them upon our mind means that he gives us the mind of Christ, that he emblazons them on our heart means that we are controlled by the love of Christ. Among those promises 
the better promises, I will be their God and they will be my people. There is no greater privilege or honor than this than to call the God of Israel Yahweh our God and to call ourselves his people. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Happy are those people whose God is the Lord of Israel. But he also says, none of them will teach his fellow citizen or his brother saying, know the Lord, because all will know me. All will know me. I want to consider those things today. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will never again remember their sins. Another wonderful promise. You say, well, why is that a better promise? Because under the old covenant, there was a remembrance of sins every year in Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Hebrews 10.3, with those sacrifices, there was a remembrance of sins. But the greater promise is I will again, never again remember their sins because of a special sacrifice that occurred, a once and for all sacrifice, a sacrifice that was not for the sins of ignorance of the people of Israel, but the sins of ignorance, of cognizance, willful and unwillful sins of ignorance and sins committed in willful arrogance, all were paid for, all were judged in Jesus Christ's sacrifice. In and by the sacrifices offered under the old covenant arrangement, there is a remembrance of sins every year. That's Hebrews 10.3. By the sacrifice of Jesus once and for all and forever, there is never a remembrance of sins ever again, never a recollection of them. Because in Jesus once and for all and forever, God removes sin. Jesus removed sin by the sacrifice of himself in accordance with the fulfillment of the new covenant promise. I will never again remember their sins. What is not explicitly disclosed in that promise in Jeremiah 31 is what the hegemonic spirit makes clear. And for that term, hegemonic spirit, we have to refer you to Increment 266 from this Wednesday. The leading spirit, the authoritative spirit, the spirit of grace makes it clear why he never remembers our sins. God never again remembers our sins or the sins of the world for that matter. Because Jesus, the Son of God, appeared once at the termini of the ages at the end of one age and the beginning of another, to, at the crossroads of the ages, to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it remarkably, he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. After Jesus had risen from the dead, he said to Mary of Magdala, who mistook him for the gardener at first, tell my brothers, I'm going to my God and to your God. 
I will be their God, and they will be my people. Go and tell my brothers. He's not ashamed to call us brothers, those whom he calls to glory. I'm going to my God and to your God. Jesus, God himself, says, I'm going to my God and to your God. John 20, 17. Why? Because the people of God are now the brothers of the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. The brothers and the sisters, the siblings. And because the new covenant promise has been fulfilled, they, we, are the people of God, together with Jesus. Jesus encompasses and embodies all of God and all of his people. God, his Father, and his God is now our God and our Father. Furthermore, when Thomas saw the resurrected Jesus, he said, My Lord and my God. The one who speaks of my God is called my God by Thomas. And they both work, strange but true. Thomas was entirely correct in saying this, my Lord and my God, to Jesus, because Jesus, who is one with and of the same family as the New Covenant community, is also one with his Father in essence, in name, in being, in act. Jesus Christ is our God and we are his people. Just as God the Father is our God and the Holy Spirit is our God. It was Yahweh the God of Israel who said, I will be their God and they will be my people. It was Jesus whom Thomas rightly addressed as Yahweh, my God. Under the old order and in the old covenant, there was a remembrance of sins and the offerings offered once a year. That was specifically what happened, a recollection of sins. Under the new order and the new covenant, there is no such reminder, nor will there ever be again. To be reconciled to God means that sins are not imputed to us or to the world, not accounted to us. The world is reconciled to God, for God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's what we call the alteration of the situation, the radical and permanent alteration of the human and the creational situation. There's really three circles. There is God who is the God of the New Covenant community. And in the greater circle, he is God of the nations. And in a greater circle, he is God of all creation. And he sums up all of Israel, all of the nations, all of humanity, and all of creation in his son. 
The world is reconciled to God, for God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them, the world. To be reconciled with God in our experience and the reconciliation that was wrought in the cross is a continual thing because it goes on now. We are being reconciled to God in our experience as we reconcile our thinking to the mind of Christ, as we are controlled by the love of Christ, as the hegemonic spirit governs us by his grace, leads us, guides us, directs us. So in our experience to be reconciled to God in this time between the two great alterations means to be reconciled with the knowledge that God remembers our sins no more. Though God does not remember our sins, we often do. Though God does not remember the sins of others, we often do. Sin, though not remembered by God, still has a profound effect on human beings. It keeps us from knowing God, as all will know him. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, including our sin, but sin keeps us from knowing him. It keeps us from knowing God as all will know him, in fact, all who do know him in future world. Where there is no knowledge of God, there is no knowledge that God no longer remembers sins. To know God is to know the God who never recalls our sins. Consequently, there is the continual commission of sins on our part, and the experience of perishing in our conscience when we don't acknowledge God as a God who doesn't remember sins. Our conscience condemns us, even though God is greater than our conscience and he knows all things. That's a profound thing that 1 John 3.20 states. Our own conscience often condemns us because we remember our sins. But God is greater than our conscience, and he does not remember our sins. And if our heart doesn't condemn us, John goes on to say, then we have confidence before God. Remember the scene in Saving Private Ryan where the sniper is fast asleep and one of the soldiers says, why do you think he sleeps like a baby? And the, guy, the other guy says, because he has a clear conscience. If our heart doesn't condemn us, we have confidence before God. We are very bold, as we've said before. We approach the throne of God with unqualified confidence. We know that our prayer petitions will be answered. That's why I didn't say... And I never say, let your conscience be your guide. That's a clever human quip, but it's ridiculous. 
Rather, the scripture says, let the blood of Christ purify your conscience and the word of God be your conscience and then let your conscience be your guide. When your conscience is actually the word of grace, then you can let your conscience be your guide. Why should I let a guilty conscience, conscious and recollecting of sins, be my guide? If you reunite with someone, as Jacob did with Esau, it's always struck me that Jacob always feared his reunion with Esau because he thought Esau was going to kill him, and f for good reason. But when he met Esau, after a restless night, and a night in which he wrestled with the Lord, when he did finally see Esau, Esau came and grabbed him and hugged him, and there was reconciliation, because there had already been reconciliation in Esau's heart. And Jacob recalled that moment of seeing Esau, and when he saw Esau, he said, I have seen the face of God, because he saw the reconciliation of God in Esau's face. It's only a man with a guilty conscience that'll tell you that Esau's in hell because he forsook his birthright. And when people have a defiled conscience, they view everybody through that conscience and they judge other people and they recall other people's sins and failures and faults and flaws. And they live really the most miserable existence you can live is the, to live an existence in which you recall your own sins and the sins of others. It colors your view of everyone. It defiles the conscience. And to the person of defiled conscience, everything is defiled. They take in all the knowledge from sources that you can get knowledge from today and much knowledge brings much grief and misery, said the writer of Ecclesiastes. He's right. But much knowledge of the scriptures gives freedom and liberation. So don't let your conscience be your guide unless the blood of Christ has pure, purified your conscience and filled your conscience with the word. Then let the consci your conscience be your guide, a purified conscience be your guide. Now for some reason, and I never know the reason until later, but for some reason this verse came to me when I was studying. In 1 Corinthians 15, 34, it says, sober up. And people try to figure out, well, that's metaphorical. Well, it's kind of metaphorical, but the only time you use that, see that verb in the scriptures is one in Genesis 9.24 when Noah, who was blasted, woke from his wine and sobered up. The other time it's used is Nabal, who was so arrogant toward David and his crew, and he woke from his wine, he sobered up. And he realized what he did, and of course then his heart died in him and he died. Nabal. In Joel 1 5, 
it speaks of literal drunkenness of Israel, that there was a profound problem of alcoholism in Israel and the demonic was ruling and therefore God told them to sober up. So it's everywhere it's used, it's used literally. So I don't get too metaphorical with this because Corinth had its own problems. And of course it means also mentally and metaphorically, sober up, Paul said, like you should, and stop sinning. That's a strange thing to say. Stop sinning. For some, he says, have no knowledge of God. Sober up like you should. Like the old song, straighten up and fly right. Sober up like you should and stop sinning. But then he defines what that sinning means. For some have no knowledge of God. All will know me from the greatest to the least, God says, according to the new covenant promise. And Paul's talking to a new covenant community, and he says, some of you have no knowledge of God. And he also meant the people that you're listening to have no knowledge of God. They were being profoundly impacted by fatalists, skeptics, scientistic people, Sadducees, of the Sadducean party and Epicureans and other philosophers. Sober up, he said, like you should, and stop sinning, for some have the, no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame, he says. Now, in the context, Paul was speaking to those who doubted the resurrection of the dead. Their doubt was a sinning. Their doubt of God was a sinning and a not knowing of God, because to know God is to know the power by which he resurrects the dead. The very thing about God that we know is that he raises the dead. The very thing about God that we know in Romans 4.17, two things. One, he calls into existence things that don't exist, and that's us, and he raises the dead. Two things God does. Calls into existence things that don't exist, and he raises the dead. Those are two things God does. They're occupational things that God does. So to sin is to have no knowledge of God. And to have no knowledge of God is to doubt the resurrection from the dead of Jesus his son. And the general resurrection of the dead for all will be made alive in Christ. It's kind of a shocking thing to tell Christians that, that we are sinning when we don't believe that all will be made alive in Christ. A lot of sinful sermons going on today. So Paul was speaking to those who doubted the resurrection of the dead that were saints in Corinth. They had been strongly influenced by pseudo-intellectual skeptics and fatalists. 1 Corinthians 15.32b Isaiah 22, 13, you know the saying, let's eat, drink, and be happy because tomorrow we're going to die anyways. And that's it. They believe that philosophy. To doubt the resurrection, then, is the very essence of the ignorance of God. I'm saying that all in reference to the saying, they shall all know me. 
Once you're resurrected from the dead and have had God's power demonstrated bodily in you, you know God then. And all will know me because all will be bodily raised to life, all of humanity. All of creation will be transformed out of its state of entropy and slavery to corruption. All will know God because all will have been raised from dead, from the dead. We are the people of God, and as such, we are people who God called out of nothingness into existence and raised from the dead. It is he that has made us, not we ourselves. We are his sheep of his pasture. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. He is the great shepherd of the sheep is a universal title of Jesus Christ as the great shepherd of all of humanity as we're going to see. And so I'm taking this a step at a time because I'm being led by the hegemonic spirit from the word hegeomai, and we find that in Isaiah, or make that Psalm 51.12, uphold me by your hegemonic spirit, your governing spirit, your leading spirit, your directing spirit. The Sadducees who opposed Jesus came to him with a question and it was facetious. They were being facetious to him. They referred to the resurrection as those who denied resurrection. And you know the story. What if a man had a wife and under the Leveret law, the brother marries the widow of his brother? What, ha what happens if Seven times this happens. Who's going to be the wife? And the, they're being arrogant. They're being facetious because they doubt the res They didn't believe in resurrection, the Sadducees, a party in Israel. They also believed only in the first five books of the Bible as being inspired. And so Jesus took a passage from the first five books of the Bible, in fact, the central passage of it all, where God introduces himself to Abraham, to Moses at the burning bush and says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Jesus said, that means that all are living to God. Resurrection is in that very introduction of Yahweh to Moses, in the very center of the Pentateuch, which you regard as my word, and rightly so, but you falsely regard it as the only word. So the Sadducees also believed that only the first five books of the Old Testament, called the Pentateuch or Moses, were of God. But the very fact that God introduced himself to Moses as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he spoke of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, long dead, as being alive. He is not a God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus is saying, okay, if you only want to believe in Moses in the first five books, the resurrection is throughout that. Jesus declared that when God introduced himself to Moses, that God is a God of the living, implying that the patriarchs still lived. 
implying resurrection from the dead. On top of this, Jesus said one of the most remarkable things of all in Luke 20, 37 and 38, to God, that is in God's view, what God sees, all are living. To God, all are living. God lives in, he inhabits eternity. He sees all as living. He's already in the future where we haven't gotten to yet, where all are made alive. He sees all as alive. All are alive to him. All live to him. The Sadducees did not see what God sees. Jesus sees what God sees. And the one time we see him rejoicing in spirit, he suddenly breaks out and rejoices in spirit. And he says, Father, I thank you that you have revealed these things to children, little children, and held them from these scholars and doctors of the law. And then he went on to say, for God reveals himself to whomsoever he will. And so the son does. So Jesus sees what the father sees. Jesus lived having a beatific vision of his father. I only do that which I see my father do. He saw the father constantly in the internal interiority of his soul and spirit. He saw God. But he also saw what God saw. He sees what the Father sees. And he sees all as living. Remember when he gave the man sight, and he did it in two steps. And first the man said, I see men, I see people like trees walking. And then in the second time when he rubbed the mud in his eyes, the man said, now I see all men clearly. To see all men clearly is to see all humanity living to God. To see as God sees. The Sadducees, what a strange way to put it, sad you see. The Sadducees did not see what God sees. That's very sad you see. Jesus sees what God sees for Jesus not only sees his father, even in the days of his flesh, Jesus is God and he sees as the father sees. He sees all as living. But he knows the price that it would have to be paid that all would be made alive and that would be for him to be made sin and to die the absolute death that is the wages of sin. When Jesus became sin and sin was removed, Jesus himself was removed, something we can't even conceive of. He experienced an annihilation when he became sin. He was cut off, but not for himself but for all of us in Daniel 9.26. Jesus sees what God sees, for Jesus not only sees his Father, Jesus is God, and he sees as the Father sees. He sees all as living. 
Jesus is everything that the Father is, except he is not the Father. There is a distinction of persons. Jesus is the Son of God. The Father is only called the Father and exclusively called the Father simply because Jesus is his Son. Jesus is called God the Son precisely because God is his Father, the eternal Father who begot him eternally. Now God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is our Father. So we pray just like that. We pray our Father. The Sadducees didn't know the scriptures that they purported to know. And they certainly had no knowledge of the power of God, for that power was and is demonstrated most demonstrably in resurrection. You don't know the scriptures, because if you knew the scriptures, Jesus said, even Yahweh introducing himself to Moses would reveal the resurrection that you don't believe in. And neither do you know the power of God. For if you knew the power of God, you'd have no problem, and you'd think it entirely reasonable that he raises the dead. And God has demonstrated his power most dramatically already by the bodily resurrection of the crucified Christ, of Jesus himself. Our point is, my point is, that sin keeps us from knowing God now in time. Ignorance of God, whether through the scriptures or through his power, is a result of sin. Ignorance of God is like the senselessness of the mind in drunkenness. Repentance is like waking up from a drunken stupor. Now, why am I talking this way? Well, because in the promises with which God enacted the new covenant by speaking in Jeremiah, the prophet of God, the Lord said, I will be their God and they will be my people, and none of them will teach his fellow citizen or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because all will know me, from the least to the greatest, because I will be merciful to their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins." I can't know God except as the God who will never remember my sins. The God who shows mercy to all. You don't know God if you don't know the one who shows mercy to all and promises that all will know him. In that degree, we are sinning by not knowing him. We are sinning in ignorance and falling short of the people God wants us to be and has already made us to be. Please notice that he said, all will know me because I will be merciful to their wickedness and I will never again remember their sins. 
All will know the Lord because all will have their sins removed and their sin removed. When there is no sin, there is no ignorance of God. All will know the Lord precisely because all will be resurrected and know his power then by experience. And they will have known the maximum exercise of his power, which is his omnipotent love. Even by a bodily experience. And by the optimal internalization of all the scriptures. Imagine knowing them all and knowing them internally and completely and fully. All will know the Lord as the one who is merciful to the wickedness of all. When you know the Lord who is merciful to the wickedness of all, you don't say, well, what about him? What about her? If you can ask that as if there's supposed to be exceptions to the reconciliation of the world in certain evil people that you can point out easily. If you think there are exceptions, you don't know God. If you speak as if there are exceptions, you're arguing with God because he reconciled the world to himself. So if he reconciled the world to himself, then who in the world did he not reconcile? And so, all will know the Lord precisely because all will be resurrected. That's the whole point. All will be made alive. When you're made alive by resurrection, guess what you know? You know the power of God. You Sadducees, Jesus said, you, you're, you're, you err, you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures that you purport to know. You don't even know what that meant when God introduced himself and Yahweh introduced himself to Moses. He was talking about resurrection right there that you don't believe in. And then he said, you guys don't even know that in the resurrection they aren't married. They don't marry and are given in marriage any longer. They don't. The sons of the resurrection don't marry or are given in marriage. You, you have no idea. He shut them up, that's for sure. All will know the Lord as the one who is merciful to the wickedness of all. All who will know the God who shows mercy to all. How about that? All will know the God who shows mercy to all. All will therefore have the continual doxological response, a response of praise and spontaneous, everlasting worship all the time. The doxological response from their hearts and in their mouths that came from Paul's heart and through the pen of his secretary, Tertius, in Romans eleven thirty-three to 36. Oh, the depth of the wisdom of God. That wisdom is always associated with saving wisdom. You know the scriptures. Timothy, since a little boy, you knew the scriptures. What a difference from the Sadducees. You err not knowing the scriptures. Timothy, 
from your youth you've known the scriptures that are able to make you wise with respect to the salvation that is through the faithfulness of Christ Jesus. All scripture is profitable. Imagine when you've internalized perfectly all scripture, how profitable that will be. And on top of that, a resurrected body to implement it in. The love of Christ will control everyone then for sure. If it's more blessed to give than to receive, then imagine a society in which there's nothing but giving. <laughs> what blessedness there'll be. All will know the Lord from the greatest to the least, from the greatest of the prophets, we could say. The greatest of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The greatest of the apostles, Paul was the greatest of all of them. All will know me from the greatest, the prophets, the patriarchs, the apostles, to the least. Who are the least? The Sadducees. The foolish Corinthian doubters, the skeptical agnostics, blasphemous ideologues, scientistic atheists, all will know me. In future world, we Christians, we the apostolate atlat, the apostolate on the level of our own time, afflicted but equipped, will no longer have to urge others to come to know the Lord. Because all will know me, says the Lord. All who have already been reconciled to God will know they are reconciled. We will no longer have to make our urgent appeal. Acknowledge your reconciliation. Because all will have acknowledged their reconciliation to God in Christ. A reconciliation that occurred because he who knew no sin became sin that the world of mankind would be made the righteousness of God in him, on account of him, because of him. And if you were to see what God sees, you would see the world already reconciled to him. Now, you would see all people clearly. You would see no people after their evil, after their sins. You would see them as reconciled to God, not knowing it yet, so we appeal to them and say, know the Lord. And they say, what do you mean, know the Lord? Know that you're reconciled to him in Christ. The world has been reconciled to God in Christ. Therefore, God sees all the world in Christ. If any man is in Christ, any person is Christ, the new creation. So Paul said, how can I ever think about anyone again, ever, according to the flesh? According to racial distinctions, ethnic privilege, social caste, past history. Paul said, 
From now on, I don't know anyone that way. I know no person after the flesh. Because if any person is in Christ, and everybody is, then there's a new creation. Everything has passed away that's of the old order. The old has passed away. The distinctions have passed away. Everything is new, including my perception of all of humanity. And all these things are from God, says 2 Corinthians 5.18. He who knew no sin became sin that the world of mankind would be made the righteousness of God in him on account of him and because of him. All will know me. I don't argue with that. Elsewhere, Yahweh swore. He swore. Oh, you swore. Yahweh swore. He said, I swear every knee will bow to me. Every tongue pledge willing and worshipful allegiance to me. Isaiah 45, 23. So why shouldn't he not say, all will know me? And this is the case because all the ends of the earth will have turned to the Lord and been saved. Isaiah 45, 22. Read that sometime. 45, 22, back to back with 45, 23. Then read Philippians 2, 5 through 11. And then be in awe and fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation fear and trembling at that reality that you just read about, that every knee will bow, every tongue acknowledge, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. To see him is to be saved. Isaiah 40 and verse 5, Luke 3, 6. All flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord, and see there means experience the salvation of the Lord. All of Israel, all the nations, all of humanity, because all will have been made alive in Christ. All will know me, because all will know the power of God that made them alive in a bodily resurrection. Unto life, not unto death. It's not considered very often, but when we lack the knowledge of God's mercy upon all, we're falling short of God's glory, which simply means falling short of what God wants us to be, even now. Falling short of who and what God knows us to be, we fall short of it because of our sinfulness, even though we have the forgiveness of sins. All will know me, says the Lord, the God of Israel, the maker of the new covenant. All will know me because I show mercy to all. Not only to all of Israel, but to all of humanity whom I have made in my image and summed up in my Christ, who is my image, my son, Jesus, who is my image. He didn't say, I will make Israel in my image. He didn't say, I will make the church in my image. He said, let us make 
all of humanity, humanity in our image. And that's what he does in Christ. That's the glorious gospel. What is the glorious gospel? It's the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. It is shown into our hearts. What does this mean? I will be their God and they will be my people. And who is God speaking about when he says they will be my people? Does he mean only the houses of Israel and Judah, ethnically speaking? Well, Peter wrote to a largely formerly pagan readership and said to them, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. That's, that's quite a jump. Not a people. That comes from Hosea 2.23. He says that about Israel itself. Once you are not my people. I'm going to call you not my people. And then he says, but there's going to come a time when I call you. Once that I called you not my people, I'm going to call you my people. In fact, I'm going to call you more than my people. I'm going to call you the sons of the living God. Quite a transition. Once you, pagans, were not a people at all. You weren't a cohesive people group that could be represented in history as this people or that people. You were not a people. Now you're the people of God. He was primarily relating to Hosea 2.23 or the Septuagint, Hosea 2.25, but there's clearly an allusion to Jeremiah's new covenant prophecy here. I will be their God and they will be my people. Once you were not a people, now you are my people. Then the Apostle Peter added this, and this is profound to me, and it never leaves, never stops reverberating in my soul. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. First <laughs> Peter 2.10. So what is it that qualified a people called not my people to be called my people by Yahweh, the God of Israel? What is it that qualified them? What is it that qualified a people called not my people or a people who are not even a people at all? What qualifies them to be called my people by Yahweh, the God of Israel, the creator of the universe? Mercy, that's all. That's what qualifies them. Mercy, that's all. Saving mercy, that's all. A people who were no people became the very people of God by receiving mercy, the saving mercy that God shows to all. He puts all the Gentiles under disobedience. He puts all the Jews under disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. All will know me because all will have received mercy. The God I know, I know because I've received his mercy. I know God who shows mercy to all. There is no other God but the God who shows mercy to all. So I don't know God if I don't know the God who shows mercy to all. Do you see that? 
If there's going to be a Jesus revolution, there has to be a Jesus revolution that knows the God that shows mercy to all, not just some, not just a few, not just to a particular set of hurting people, but all people. What happened when children were praising Jesus and the Pharisees told him to shut up and the disciples were even kind of mad about it? Jesus said, God is able to raise up from these rocks children of Abraham that will praise God. That's what Peter kind of picked up on that. And he said, you're living stones now. You're, you're those rocks. He made you alive, built you up into a spiritual house that you may what? Show forth the praises of God. God took rocks. In fact, he took rocks that were in a cave under the earth in perfect darkness and took those rocks and brought them into his marvelous light and made them into children of Abraham, blessed with faithful Abraham, and gave them mouths to praise the Lord and praise God and show forth his praises. He called a people that did not even exist as a people and made them the people of God. Why? Because he's in the business of taking things that don't even exist and making them to be. And then he raises the dead. Those are things God does. If you know him, you know that about him. He is, in effect, raised up children of Abraham from the rocks, children who praise him. And that's what distinguishes us as the New Covenant community from others who, are, who receive the mercy of God but who are not yet awakened to faith what comes from our mouth should be praise and thanksgiving, not cursing and obscenity, not conformity to the world's cesspool of communicative speech today. There's one mark of distinction, giving of thanks, Paul says in Ephesians 5, 4, and 5. God has raised up a children of Abraham from the rocks, they are now living stones built up into a spiritual temple, into a people who show forth the praises of God, who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. It is he that has made us, not we ourselves. We are not self-made people. We have been made by the God of Israel. We are his sheep and the people of his pasture. All people are the people of God's making. All people ultimately receive God's saving mercy and already have in Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised. Therefore, all people and not just national or ethnic Israel will be the people of God. And as the people of God, they will be the sheep of his pasture. And if all people are the sheep of his pasture, they will all have the same shepherd. The shepherd is the great shepherd of the sheep who is the God of all people, namely our Lord Jesus, whom the God of peace led up from the realm of the dead on account of the blood of the everlasting covenant that was poured out for many, meaning all. The God of peace raised up this universal great shepherd of the sheep. Again, he's called the great shepherd of the sheep because the sheep are all people, all humanity over the course of all time. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
the chief shepherd gives the crown of glory to faithful under-shepherds. The great shepherd is the shepherd of all of humanity, and he is the lamb, the lamb, the shepherd, the priest and the offering, the Lord and the slave, God and man, Jesus our Lord. The God of peace is the God who in Christ reconciled the world to himself, not imputing the world's trespasses, their transgressions of the law to them, and forgiving their sins, never to remember them again. The God of peace, I say, who made peace by the blood of the cross of the Son of his love, our Lord Jesus, in order to reconcile not only Jews with non-Jews in one body making one new humanity, but reconciling everything in the heavens and on earth in him. The God of peace is our God, and Jesus is our peace as he is our hope as we await our change, our inevitable change of condition to a body of glory like his own. The God of peace is the God of reconciliation. He's given us the gospel of peace, which are combat boots with traction in this world. He is the God who, in Christ, reconciled the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. God did not charge the sins of the world to the world. Christ, his lamb, took away the sin of the world in the now that stands, nunc stans, as they put it in the Latin. The lamb of God appeared at the termini of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself for sins. If God does not impute the sins of the world to the world, then who in the world is someone who, whose sins God remembers? I'll say that again, if God does not impute the sins of the world to the world, then who in the world is someone whose sins God remembers? If God reconciled the world to himself in Christ, then who in the world is left unreconciled to God in Christ? In that sense, there is a reality that is not seen or perceived except by the perceptiveness of faith that all are now in Christ and a new creation. To God, all are living. I'm not going to argue with that. To God, all are living. So to me, all are living because to God, all are living. So by faith, to me, all are living because faith sees what God sees. Faith is not blind faith. Faith is the very sight of the kingdom of God. The sight given to us. We walk by faith, which is a sight in the kingdom of God, and not by sight, which is a blindness in this world to the kingdom of God. Now, this whole train of thought is taking us into 2 Corinthians, into a micro-apocalypse in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. I've yet to gather that whole 
section up into an apocalypse, which I'm going to do one of these Sundays. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21. It begins with the love of Christ controls us, doesn't it? Because we have determined this and come to be convinced that if one died for all, then all died. And when he made us alive, it was to live no longer to ourselves in a curvature in I'd say, as Luther put it, but extra nos, outside of ourselves, en Christo, in Christ. To live unto him who's raised from the dead. And from now on, we know no one after the flesh. These are the determinations we make. If we have any doubt that the promise, I will be their God and they will be my people, pertains to all people, do you doubt maybe that that pertains to all people? Then maybe you forget Rev the book in Revelation 21.3, which is an allusion to this promise, one of 732 allusions, at least in Revelation, to the Old Testament. Probably one of the most prominent ones. Revelation 21.3, look, he says, the tent of God is with humanity. Humanity, ton anthropon with humanity. We would interpret that as the tent or the dwelling of God, the residence of God is within within all of humanity. It's an allusion to Jeremiah, I will be their God and they will be my people. Look, he says, he sees in the future world, he sees the tent. Guess what the subject is that straddles this whole new covenant passage that we're in. The tent. Hebrews 8, 2 through 5. And then Hebrews 9, 1. For the old covenant had something associated with it called a tent. We're not going to go into all that it means, but there's the the lampstand in which Jesus says, I am the light of the world. There is the bread, the showbread on the table, the trapeza of showbread, and Jesus said about the bread, my flesh is bread for the world. It's all the light of the world, means that he enlightens all the world with salvation, and I am the bread of life, and my flesh is bread that feeds the whole world with life, in John 6.51, in John 8.12. So everything about the tent is the universal salvific Christ. But we don't want to talk about these things in particular, says the writer. Why? Because he's getting to a point that's later on in Hebrews 9 and on into 10 about the once and for all sacrifice. That's something of value. So what straddles this whole thing is the 10. And what does, what does it literally says in Revelation 21.3, look, the tent of God is with humanity. He does not say, look, the tent of God is with Israel. He does not say the tent of God is with the church or even the tent of God is with the nations. But the tent of God is with ton anthropon, meaning with humanity in general, humanity universally. That's a wonderful declaration and it's not a direct quote, but it's an allusion to 
I will be their God. Whose God? Humanity's God. And they, all of humanity, will be my people. John sees the bigger circle here. A new heavens and a new earth is the bigger circle that wraps up that circle of all humanity. So this is a reference to the new covenant promise. Thank you, Father, for taking us this way because I didn't see an end to this, but here it is. I will be their God and they will be my people is also a practical exhortation. Let's close with 2 Corinthians. You can turn there just for a minute. There's a whole lot that goes here. I'm only going to hit one or two points and then we'll close. 2 Corinthians, and we are interweaving two core with Hebrews very creatively and carefully. There's a reference to the new covenant promise, I will be their God and they will be my people in a practical exhortation by Paul in 2 Corinthians 6.16b, where he says, we are the temple of the living God. This goes back to 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 6.19. Individually, every person is a temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16, the new covenant community is the temple for now. As God said, I will house myself in them and walk among them. And I think that even means walk in them. Jesus walking in you. You take the step that Jesus in you takes. And I will be their God and they will be my people. Do you see it? I will house myself in them and walk among them. That's not from Jeremiah. It's from another passage. Because you know what Paul does? He drives us mad by conflating two verses in one quote or three or five. In this case, about 12 in one quote. But the, the standout thing is this. And I will be their God and they will be my people. That is a standout quote from Jeremiah 31. This is one of Paul's composite quotations where he conflates Leviticus 26, 11, and 12 with Jeremiah 31, 33, Jeremiah 32, 38, Ezekiel 37, 26, and Ezekiel 36, 27 with Jeremiah 31, 33. With a nod to Ezekiel 36, 27, I will place my spirit in them and cause them to walk in my Two tablets, my two ordinances. Those ordinances, you will love the Lord your God totally, and you will love your neighbor as yourself, but neighbor includes all of humanity, including your enemies. The love of God poured out in our hearts. The love of God poured out in our hearts. The love of Christ controls us. The only way to stop sinning, then, when Paul says stop sinning, is to be controlled by the love of Christ. To be under the government of the Lord, the Spirit. And I do refer to, he, to increment 266 from this week. The hegemonic spirit. For it is he that pours out the love of God in our hearts. When the hegemonic spirit, we call the Lord, the Spirit, has his way. Even in our inclinations and thoughts and dispositions and attitudes. When the hegemonic spirit has his way and sway in the new covenant community. Demonic spirits are driven out, out of individuals, out of communities, out of nations, generations, civilizations. 
Is there a demonic spirit that causes addictions? Yes. I've seen people delivered from a demon of addiction. And yes, many times there is a demon possession in individuals today. But as we've learned recently, and we've learned it before in Matthew 12, 43 to 45, a generation can be possessed by the demonic. A generation. If, the, if I were a demon, you know what I'd start right off doing? Saying, oh, let's see, God made a male and female. Let's confuse that. Let's start right off. Let's confuse people. Let's get men not to act like men, but like women. Let's get men to love men instead of women. Let's get women to love women instead of women instead of men. Let's get let's screw up this whole marriage thing. Let's screw up this whole family. Let's screw up this whole gender thing. Let's really screw everything up. And then let's a belligerent nation that is totalitarian take over. And then the demonic is the hegemonic. I always said if I wasn't a preacher, I'd make a really good demon. And we should be able to make really good demons because we should be aware of his devices. We should be aware of what he would do. We ought to know our enemy and know him well, know his tactics, know his devices, 2 Corinthians 2.11. And I do know his devices, and so do you, if you have discernment of spirits. And you need discernment of spirits today. There's a lot of people walking around and you think they're, they have a Christian orientation and they're of a demonic spirit. You don't, if you don't have the discernment of spirits, you don't know and you'll be sucked in and suckered every single time. So when the hegemonic spirit has his way, the Holy Spirit, the Lord's spirit, the spirit, demonic spirits are driven out of individuals, of communities, of nations, of generations, of civilizations. When the hegemonic Holy Spirit has his way, there is salvation. When the demonic has its way, there is perishing. Where there is perishing, there is the demonic. Where there is salvation, there is the hegemonic spirit of grace. We are not the temple of dead idols, but the temple of the living God. He has set up his tent with us in the new covenant community. We have responsibility. We know things that the world doesn't know yet. The world is reconciled to God, yes, but the world in general does not know that, but we do know that, so we do have to say, know that. There'll come a time when we don't have to say, know the Lord. There is a time now for us to say it. The tent is the subject that straddles the new covenant quotation in Hebrews 8, 8b through 13. For the tent is the subject of Hebrews 8, 2 to 5, and Hebrews 9, 1 to 12, and you're going to see it much more clearly because we hovered around Hebrews 8, 8b through 12 for a really long time to understand the new covenant. To understand the new covenant is to understand the new covenant community, is to understand your vocation, and to understand why God awoke you to faith and revealed his son in you to make you an afflicted but well-equipped witness of the Apostle at Atlot. I will make a covenant of peace with them, God says in Ezekiel 37, 26. It will be an everlasting covenant, he says, diatheke 
Aonia, Hebrews 13, 20, it's used again. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish and multiply them, and my encampment will be among them. We know the God who shows mercy to all and remembers sins no more. We say to the world, know this Lord. We say to the church, know this Lord. Father, thank you that we know you, and we have a boast today. We do not boast in wealth. Most of us don't have it. We don't boast in strength. Most of us aren't strong. We don't boast in wisdom. Most of us aren't that wise. We boast in this, that we know you, that we've come to know you, the God who shows mercy and has done a saving act in Jesus Christ which affects the whole world. We know that, and that's our boast, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.